Hey everyone, Steven here. This is an incredibly important episode to me. And uh, it has been in the works for a very long time. And I am so glad that I finally get to share it with you. In this episode, Matt, my co-host, and I uh, sit down and talk with a dear old friend named Timothy. And we are keeping his last name anonymous for his privacy and the privacy of his family. But people in our immediate community will certainly know and love Timothy. And he is in the process of coming out of the closet. He is an extraordinary human being. He has an incredible amount of honesty, integrity, and faith. He is a really admirable and wonderful person, and I'm honored to call him my friend. And I am sharing this episode with you because for every Timothy out there, there is another LGBT person who just dies in misery and in secrecy, keeping their identity from the world. And I firmly believe that the only way to make this sort of pain, the pain of the closet, the pain of living in secrecy and shame, the only way to make that kind of pain unnecessary, well, maybe not the only way, but a primary way, is to tell these stories. And that's why I'm enormously grateful to Timothy for sharing his time with me and Matt. He's an incredible human being, and his story is beautiful. And as you listen to his story, I just ask that you also think of all the other men and women and those not within the binary, all of those other people, children of God, who have not had the freedom to be honest in the way that Timothy has here. This is a very, very important episode to me. It kind of expresses the whole purpose of this podcast, which is to tell human stories. So it is a great honor to present to you my conversation with Timothy. This is Sacred Tension, the podcast about the spiritual discipline of asking questions. My name is Stephen Long, and I am here with my co-host for this week, Matt Langston. Yep. Welcome back to the show, Matt. I'm so I'm just stoked to be here. And we are in the gorgeous Rock Candy, new Rock Candy studio. Yes. It has a sparkly floor. <laughs> it, it's <laughs> this this room is like the interior of Matt's soul. That, that's kind of what I modeled it. After. It has a sparkly floor. It has blue and purple neon lights everywhere. There are unicorns on the wall. And <laughs> as I said in a previous recording with him, I at least have the excuse of being queer. <laughs> he doesn't even have the excuse of I, being ever, queer. Ever since I was a small child, <laughs> I have just been completely into queer aesthetic, I guess. Absolutely. Is the best way to say it. Pet Shop Boys. You're a better queer Rainbows. than I am. <laughs> 
I just, I don't know what it is. I just, I love it. It's, it's a good thing. Yeah, it's, it's great. kind of like jingling keys in front of a toddler. It's just like anything shiny and sparkly. That so you're like noise. a, so you're like a black bird who just loves shiny, sparkly things. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. Speaking of queer, the other <laughs> when we were recording, yes. when we were recording a, a month or two ago, you were saying something brilliant, and I just zoned out, and I was staring at your eyebrows, and all I could think was. <laughs> His eyebrows are perfect. My eyebrows his are eyebrows, louder than my... <laughs> his eyebrows are perfectly groomed. I, but I never touched that. This is the only part that's of my crazy. body that's like perfectly groomed. Everything else is like I haven't showered in a while. <laughs> Probably need to get this under control. Yeah. All right. Well, Matt Langston is the owner of Rock Candy Studios. We are here in Rock Candy Recordings right now. He is also the front man of Eleven D Seven and the Jelly Rocks. And we have a very special guest today. Please welcome Timothy. Say hello, mm -hmm. Timothy. Hello. <laughs> <laughs> so this show has been in the works for a long time. And I'm really, really excited to finally able to sit down and record this show. Timothy has been on a really extraordinary journey. He has been part of the Christian world his entire life. How old are you now, Timothy? I am 58 years old. All right. Would you like to go ahead and, and say what you've come here to say? Well, what I've come here to say is to have a conversation with two very dear friends mm. who love me and accept me because as long as I can remember my life, I have been same-sex attracted. Mm. Mm. And that is as real to me as the neon lights in this room and the sparkly <laughs> floor and, and the scented candle that's even burning behind, behind Matt. And it's something that I spent the majority of my life trying to ignore, trying to deny, trying not to live into because I was a part of a world that could not abide that aspect of me. And that, and that world was the conservative evangelical Christian church. Mm. And I did my very best to follow their rules, to follow their ideology about me and about other people like me. And I survived, by and large, living in that sub-ghetto of the church, as I like to call it. Sure. But survival is not living, necessarily. Survival is not flourishing. Survival is not being alive, mm. necessarily. So at this autumnal age of 58, I've decided to stop doing that. Mm. And... That's not easy to say, given the fact that uh, I am married to a woman and I have two children. How, how long were you married to her? 31 and a half years. Well, I mean, technically we're still married, right, right. but we have been separated for about four months now. Mm. So, you know, 31 and a half years out of 58 years is a significant amount of time. Mm. I think, you know, if I was thinking of this... It's a third of, this, of an average lifespan. <laughs> if you think of this as, you know, an experiment, I would say that I have invested a fair amount of time trying to come to some <laughs> sure. conclusion right. about what I consider to be my sexual orientation. From this point on, with the understanding and with the, I don't think I can say permission, but I will say compassion sure. and understanding 
and love of a wife and two children, I have embarked on a new life where I will no longer pretend to be anything other than what I am. Mm. Some would say, wow, why did you wait so long? I, I don't know. I came to this because several, several things occurred in the last five years of my life yeah. that made this much more accessible. Mm. You know, as I've, as I've said to both of you, I think at some point, I woke up enough and became aware enough. Hmm. So you became woke. You have been in the process of coming out to yourself kind of over the past two or three years, basically. As of this recording, you're still pretty much in the closet. But then when this recording drops, this will be kind of your coming out. How's, how's that feeling? How does that feel? How does it feel to say who you are? And, and what is that like for you? Well, you know, it's interesting what you just said, because I don't know that I would, that I would say that I'm just now coming out to myself. Mm, mm -hmm. I mean, I think I've been pretty clear in my mind about who I am for a long time. I just did not have cultural and societal and the permission of the ghetto in which I was living. I did not have their permission to live into it mm. because I was working primarily within communities that would have considered themselves conservative, evangelical, right. biblically sound. Well, th they would use those terms, right. yes. I would say they would follow what we would call a conscious literalism as it relates to the scriptures. Right. And the scriptures say, and therefore what they say is true, and I am to live according to that truth. Given that, I don't think I've been wondering about me. I have just tried for a very long time not to show up. Hmm. I guess that would be the way to describe my life, is trying every day to appear not same-sex attracted and to appear opposite-sex attracted. <laughs> Yeah. <laughs> so it's it's a lot of work every day to not show up and right. to try to show up as something that you aren't. Mm. And you know, I use same sex attracted, opposite sex attracted terms because I'm offended by the terms gay and straight mm -hmm. because, you know, what's the opposite of straight? Crooked. <laughs> right. Bent. Right. What's the opposite of gay? Dower. <laughs> yeah. You know. And all I want to say is, you know, if, if, if I had a film of the last 58 years of my life, and I'm sure by age eight, I knew, I was very aware, I can remember having, you know, or do they call them, do they still call them things like wet dreams? Mm -hmm. You know, when I was in middle school and earlier about, about boys. Yeah. So, I mean, I think I've spent enough time working right. through this. Mm. 50 years, so to speak. Yeah. So I'm not so sure that I still need to be doing my homework. I think it's pretty clear. I have never, never really, to my knowledge, ever been opposite sex attracted. So what... And, and just, <clears throat> just to add one thing. <clears throat> yeah. You know, if I had a film of the last 50 years of my life, I don't think anyone would watch it and say that seems very gay. Right. Because, you know, there's a lot of people who will hear this conversation and, you know, unless they had a real sense of gaydar, I don't think they probably 
have been suspecting me to have this conversation. See, that, that's interesting that that's how you finished that sentence because when you started it as saying, you know, my life, if my life were a film, I was thinking that you were going to say, if my life were a film, it would feel like up until now, it's kind of been in black and white and I've kept all the color out of it. And, and I, I didn't know if that was like a good metaphor for kind of, I have noticed a, a change in you because you and I have worked mm -hmm. together professionally sure. yeah. and I feel like we've had, you know, this is sort of the icing on the cake of a lot of other conversations, a lot of other ingredients that have kind of gone into it. And yeah, I mean, I, I kind of feel like what I've seen as your friend in your life has been something kind of undeniable. We've all sort of been going on these really similar journeys yeah. of, of kind of picking apart our faith, having to own up to the fact that there are parts of our faith that don't work, that there are parts of being included in evangelicalism that that don't necessarily work, parts of Protestant culture that are really damaging. Mm -hmm. I think we're all living out the damage that different things within that structure have caused mm. personally. So I feel like I relate to what you're saying on a level as in as far as the church is concerned, because I feel like in talking to you about your experience growing up in the church, I resonate a mm -hmm. lot with that. And maybe not necessarily feeling like my, well, no, I, actually, I, I would say that even as a straight person, I feel like sexuality is is so muted it's so taboo it's so unhealthily discouraged yeah <laughs> with, and that's and that's yeah. the great irony is because one of the major events of the christian faith is mm. the incarnation of jesus christ becoming enfleshed i mean that is pretty amazing when you think about the fact that we know that and we celebrate it at christmas and we celebrate it at easter and we, we we do it all right except the average christian is utterly ashamed of their bodies yes the the physical manifestation of their presence is something they're uncomfortable about we've been trained to divorce it from our minds and our spirits from day one because we can't deal with it. We are so platonic in that sense of dualism. So the best way, I guess, to deal with that is to create a lot of very black and white yes, no answers about sexuality. Because if we can just, if we can make it absolutely crystal clear about what is right and what is wrong, then we don't have to travel down the road of messiness, which is just inherent in spirituality of any kind, I think, and particularly Christian spirituality, which I adhere to. Yeah, That will be the shocking reality for a lot of people who will hear this interview. I want you to know from the get-go that my decision to no longer deny and hide about the fact that I'm a same-sex attracted man has been the most important and most electrifying spiritual journey of my life mm -hmm. and not a sexual journey, which to my evangelical brothers and sisters will be aghast to hear me say that because how could I possibly be living a vital faith, one that feels more alive than it ever has in my entire life, and I've come to this decision. Mm. Clearly, I've drunk some very powerful Kool-Aid somewhere. Right. Someone needs to save me from it. But the fact is, you know, as I'm sure we'll talk about, how did I get there? Because it just don't make sense. 
I, I've seen so many people go through the process that you're going through now. And one of the reasons why I wanted to have you on is because you are still in the middle of it. You are still in the process of it. And I think that these stories are so valuable because for every Timothy in the world and for every Stephen Long in the world who manages to make it work, there are untold numbers of people within the Christian world who just die. They die in secrecy. They die in misery. And I think that was an option for both of us. You know, <laughs> we were we were both offered the choice of you can it's like that that scene in in Lord of the Rings where Sam stops and he says, if I take one more step, this will be the furthest away from home I've ever been. And that one more step is choosing to somehow live in congruence with our orientation, somehow choosing to accept it and live authentically. Each and every one of us has had that choice to take that step or we just go back to the Shire mm -hmm. and live mm -hmm. and die mm -hmm. in, in secrecy. And, and that's why I think this story is so important. You know, I want to put this story out there because telling these stories is the only way to ensure that this kind of pain will never, ever be necessary ever again. You know, you've talked a lot about what life was like in the closet. What did the closet do to you? emotionally, psychologically, in terms of your physical health, mm -hmm. in terms of how you engaged with other people. Could you talk about what life has been like in the closet and the consequences of the closet? Remember, contextually, you know, I have worked in churches, conservative evangelical churches. I've worked in conservative evangelical Christian schools, day schools. I've worked in conservative evangelical Christian colleges. I mean, when you consider the places that I've worked, then basically my full-time job was hiding. Yes. That was my full-time job. I also was a teacher, but my full-time job was hiding because I had to make sure that I, I was never present as I really am. My greatest inspiration for living a non-active life, and what I mean by non-active, I mean I never lived into my same-sex attracted being sure. identity the entire time I've been married. So for 31 and a half years, I never had any relations with a man, which some people don't believe me when I say that. Yeah. But I didn't because, and I mean, I wish I could say that I didn't because my first priority was loving God. But the fact is, the greatest fear I had is what would happen to my wife and my children in those communities if I was discovered doing things that they would not approve of and what, and what would happen to them. It really came down to protecting them. And I am so thankful that I did. I mean, I, I, I have no regrets about that. Yeah. And I'm not going to be disingenuous i'm not gonna i mean i literally did not physically act out in that manner so to you is that like a sacrifice that you made for your family when absolutely that you gladly made absolutely you thought it would keep them safe i thought it would keep them from an incalculable amount of pain mm. because as much as i want to believe that they would have been treated well 
Hmm. I think they would have been shamed, and I think it would have been very damaging. I mean, I would also have been so reproached that, I mean, I would never have found work within those within those communities ever again. I mean, the stain would have been severe. And, and short of me going through some kind of therapy, promising that, you know, I was no longer same-sex attracted, prom- you know, it would have been horrific. Yeah. Because I don't, I cannot say to you that no one who has tried to reorient themselves has never succeeded because I don't know the answer to that. Yeah. I can't And they're always that. outliers. <laughs> there are always outliers, but I, Stephen, between the two of us, I mean, I, I know that you've had a lot of conversations with people that have gone through something like far more than I have. Yeah. But I've yet to meet anybody, even the people that say, okay, yes, I still subscribe to these teachings and these beliefs within evangelical Christianity, but I'm gay and I'm going to, in the name of that faith, mute that part of my life. I've yet to see anybody living with a freedom or a joy or a sense of purpose that doesn't feel put on. It doesn't feel like they're they're masking something something else. And that that's just me. I'm not saying that those people aren't out there. Or the fact that, you know, one of the biggest ex-gay leaders from the 90s and 2000s, he started hitting on me on Facebook and on <laughs> private messages. Okay? You know. <laughs> and I will not name him. He is a nationally recognized person. I'm not going to name this person. You don't have but to. There's two or three of them. I mean, you could probably I mean, Google. <laughs> yeah, but he he would hit on me on on Facebook on yeah. private message. So, but you know, there are outliers who say that they have actually successfully changed their orientation. I have no reason to disbelieve them. I think that they are not representative of the vast majority of LGBT people. I, I think that's safe. I think it's a safe assumption. Yeah. And and this is not an endorsement of ex-gay therapy in any way. Please do not get ex-gay <laughs> therapy. <laughs> anyway, go on, Timothy. No, I, it's just that I, I just don't want to say that it isn't possible. But, you know, I spent years praying sure. and crying and begging and wishing I'm just going to say that was not something that God gave me. He did not answer that prayer, and I'm now to the place of saying, well, maybe it didn't need to be answered. Maybe it didn't need to be fixed. Exactly. Maybe it was a non sequitur, and you were the one making it an issue. You know, getting back to the years of sacrifice, you know, I was carrying around enough shame and to have added to that shame the knowledge that an entire community was ashamed of me, I couldn't. I could not have lived through it. Or of your family. Yeah. Of your daughters. So you see, I just, you know, I, I, don't, I don't know that for people who don't understand this, they cannot comprehend the amount of shame that one feels if you're living in a community that says the Bible says that you are an abomination, yeah. you are, yeah, you are, you are so twisted that you are utterly unlovable. And you know something to that I 
want to add to that is it isn't the cruel people who hurt the most. You know, I've been called a faggot before. I've been made fun of. I've been, you know, called out on the street in Asheville. It isn't those people who hurt me the most. It isn't the people on Twitter who tell me that I should kill myself for being gay. That it isn't those people who (laughs) offend me the most. What, What hurts the most are those nice Christian church ladies who are so kind and believe that you are fundamentally broken, right? Mm-hmm. That your reality, that that your experience of reality, is fundamentally altered in a damaged way. That it is altered, and unless God somehow reaches down and breaks it back into place, your broken reality back into place, then you will never truly be whole. Mm-hmm. And you are forbidden from doing all the things that that every other person on this planet is capable of doing, having a loving partnership or, or a partnership with the gender that you are attracted to. Mm-hmm. And you are excluded from all of that. And it's the kind people who devastate, or at least who devastated me the most. Mm-hmm. And, and you know, this is kind of something that I that I tell people all the time. I hear from so many Christians who disagree with me on this subject. It's really just all about love. You know, I don't agree with your quote-unquote lifestyle, but I'm going to choose to love you. And and I'm at the point now where I want to tell people, love is actually not enough. You have to be right. (laughs) You know, if you're in the 20s and give your, your baby cocaine to cure her cough, Sure. You may administer it out of complete love, but it will still hurt her. Right. Mm-hmm. And still damaging. love is not the point. You have to be right. And sometimes it is the most loving people with the wrong view of the world, with a misaligned view of God and the church and the world that hurt people the most. I might not even go so far as to say that it's necessarily a wrong view. I feel like you, I feel like it's. Things that I thought a year ago, I don't think anymore. Things that I thought, who I was five years ago is not the same person. Mm -hmm. There's still a semblance of that image there. But like, I mean, we're all on a journey. Those things are constantly evolving. I mean, I, I, I look at people like my parents who hold wildly different religious beliefs than, than I do. And it's just where they are. Like, it's not, it's not out of, I don't know. Maleficence. (laughs) (laughs) Malevolence. Yeah. Or malevolence that they hold them. It just kind of is representative of where they are or like what, what we've been talking about throughout the conversation. I feel like when you talk about those old church ladies, I feel like what they do is project their image of God onto you. Like yeah. the God that they serve could not abide. You know, the God that they know, what their ideas about morality and what moral structure should be and, and spiritual structure within their lives. I feel like that's more of a reflection of how limited that might be and when they project that onto you, it's like, well, the God that I serve could never tolerate your lifestyle. It's almost always a reflection of them. It's like, no, you're the one not tolerating my lifestyle. You're you're the one that has a problem with it. You don't really know if he has a problem with it. Do we even serve the same deity? Or is this just like a projection of our own insecurities that we're afraid of facing? Yeah. And it's an inability to let other people be who and, and what and where they are. Absolutely. Yeah. Yeah. So, I mean, it really comes down to the fact that probably within our religious communities, our faith communities, you know, because I am a Christian, I'll say the Christian community, especially within conservative evangelicalism, 
probably the most fearful thing imaginable mm. is not being certain. Right. Yes, absolutely. That is the most frightening thing you can say. Which means that that's what they worship, I feel like, uh, oftentimes. Like, and, and I don't I don't mean at all for this to be a, a church bashing uh, sort of a thing, because I know at, at the end of the day, it's like all of us have problems with organized religion. You're obviously here sharing this incredible story about your process through leaving parts of it and, and sort of reformatting it and figuring out what that means for you. But at the end of the day, it's kind of like, well, now what? We know the system's broken. We have we have problems with all these people. We have these hangups with the church. Now what? Mm-hmm. You You came to a place in your life where it took a lot of courage i feel like to leave a lot of the normalcy but at the same time i feel like you were suffocating on it absolutely if you are listening to this and you're not a person who deeply understands same-sex attraction Mm. then i hope you'll hear this conversation and understand that because our culture is so dominantly Mm. heterosexual in how it views all things right yeah and dominantly patriarchal you can't understand how my life has been you know the proverbial fish out of water Mm. you know i've tried to go through this world as i said before trying not to show up and to show up as something that i can't be yeah and it's exhausting you know a, a word that means a great deal to me today is the word authenticity Mm. yeah to be authentic which you know i know there will be people who hear that and they think oh this is very oprah-esque you got to find yourself and and you know what i'm not i don't subscribe to the religion of oprah but she's on to something we do need we do actually need to understand ourselves better than we're usually willing to yeah Finding oneself, you know, I have found myself in God. I have found my same-sex attracted self in God. Shock of all shocks. <laughs> but, 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 but instead of instead of living every day, waking up every day and going, here's another day of dying, mm. or is it a day of living? And yeah. And what I say to people who will hear me, I wake up today and I go, this is a day for living because I don't have to be ashamed of who I am anymore. It, it sounds sort of sick to say this, but I spent most of my life asking God if I can die. That's what I really wanted. You know, I was, I was thoroughly situated on the concept that I was a Christian and that my salvation was secure and my future was secure with God. You know, I, I basically had the the bullet point version of the gospel. I got that. And that, you know, I was going to be, it's going to be okay, eternally speaking. And I was just sort of going, you know, especially when you get to be my age, I was going, you know what, if, if you just want to take me on, please, I mean, I'm not going to be upset, you know. I have every confidence that you'll take care of my wife, you'll take care of my children, you'll take care of everything, but I am so exhausted. Mm. I just want I just want to go. Mm. I just don't want to be here anymore because I figure 
it's got to be better somewhere else. So I've known you for about 10 years. We've been friends for about 10 years. Mm -hmm. And the Timothy who I know now is a different man. Yeah. He's a he's a different human being. And the level of ease and freedom and it, it, you carry with you a completely different energy since you've you've been in this process of coming out and it's incredible and you've told me kind of a lot of the subtle consequences of being in the closet so you're an actor as well you're you do um mm -hmm. stage work and and this is something that I think a lot of people don't understand, and I had this kind of experience as well, that being in the closet determines seemingly microscopic things, like not wanting to perform a romantic role, mm -mm. because there is the fear that what if someone would catch on, you know? And and so, you know, me as a voice major, I would have, you know, you know love ballads and whatnot, mm -hmm. and there was always this fear for me that, what if someone were to catch on to the inauthenticity here, mm -hmm. you know, or, and, and I remember you telling, saying that yeah. as well, little things like that. Oh, absolutely. Yeah. I mean, it was, which, which is why in, in my career, I shied away from serious roles. I shied away from romantic roles Yeah, because I was frightened that the audience would see right through me. Mm. I'm very much a man. I don't want to be a woman. You're very cis, in other words. S-I-S, or C-I-S, cisgender. Okay. <laughs> I'm new to some of this, it's but okay that's fine. It's okay to go with that, yep. Okay, that's fine. And, and <laughs> I don't really take on any feminine persona. I don't know if that's because I have policed myself within an inch of my life for so long. But it just doesn't, I just don't seem to gravitate toward that. But, you know, when you're on stage and you're playing a character, it's incredibly, incredibly, excuse me, vulnerable. Yes. I mean, the transparency is huge. And I was afraid I would be put in a scene with a woman. And as much as I would try to imagine her as a him, and no, I just was, I was terrified of that. Yeah. So I specialized in fat and funny. Mm. So I uh, would do fat and funny the, roles. The Duke of Plaza Doro Ex when exactly, we were in exactly. gondoliers together. So yeah. that's where I would go because I could pull that off. Mm. Or, you know, tragic characters like, you know, because I'm a because I'm a baritone, I would be, you know, I'd be cast as, you know, prophets and martyrs and you know jesus and god <laughs> and fathers and princes and dukes and stuff like that so you know they were so old they weren't going to be romantic so that, that was going to be fine hmm. so yeah i was very careful because i was like no i just cannot put myself in a situation that vulnerable yeah and you know other things related to the closet you know not only hiding but I developed no male friendships mm. my entire life. I, I relate to that too. None at all. Because given my same-sex attracted orientation, why would I do that? Yeah. That's just setting myself, that's setting myself up. <laughs> and then within the context that I was working, you know, it'd be like me developing male friendships under the microscope 
of a, yes. of of communities where even though now you know I, I realize how really unequipped they were to really recognize gay people. Well, I, that, that, <laughs> I'm really level. glad that you bring that up because I feel like as you were, as both of you guys were talking about feelings, feeling so weird about, well, oh my gosh, what if somebody sees maybe, what if somebody sees the inauthenticity of my attraction towards somebody that I have to play a role with, or God forbid they see the actual authenticity mm-hmm. of my attraction to same sex in, in while I'm taking on this really vulnerable role, as I'm being sort of a spectator to that conversation, I think I, you overestimate what people want to believe about you. I think that there's a lot of people within that church culture, they want to believe that you're straight. They're not picking up on it. Mm-hmm. You know what I mean? Oh, yeah. Like, especially within this, like, the Christian colleges and stuff, like, people just want to assume like, there are people who still want me to be straight. There are people who still <laughs> say, you know, Stephen, someday you're going to get a great wife and you're going to have kids. And I'm like, well, keep dreaming. Yeah. Get, <laughs> good luck yeah. with that. I'm pretty happy with my partner. <laughs> yeah. But but you but you have to realize that, you know, in the Sunday school classes, in the Bible studies, on the Christian radio, from the pulpits. Yeah. There is this non-negotiable definition of what man and woman are. Right. Yes. What that looks like. Gender roles. Gender roles. You know, what marriage is, what marriage isn't, what a family is, what a family isn't. So there was no ability to not be constantly measuring yourself. Yes. Against this is what God has said and this is what you are. And oops, you don't measure. Yeah. You don't mm. measure up. So I would avoid any situation where I could be measured. Did you feel judged? Well, I was Or did judging. you feel like you were keeping trying to keep yourself from being judged? Oh, I was constantly trying to keep myself from being judged and I was spending all my time judging myself. You know, kind of the resident scientist for this show, Melissa Wilson, said something to me really extraordinary the other day. And I'm not a science person, and so I'm going to totally botch this. But she said that there was a a series of studies done on African-American and Hispanic women and that they miscarry more. And the study was like, well, why why is this? And what the study kind of concluded was it's because they feel more judged. African, wow. African, or, or uh, African American mothers, yeah, feel more judged in America. Hispanic mothers feel more judged in America, and that has such real consequences. It changes your body chemistry. It changes your body chemistry, and and you know, Timothy, we've talked a lot about how the closet changes our bodies. Mm-hmm. You know, you were saying, was it was it um, your blood pressure levels or your cholesterol levels have gone down since you've come out? Blood blood pressure. Now, granted, I am on medication, but sure. I, I had other issues related to my heart that have ceased happening. Exactly. Mm. It's incredible. And these are the consequences of living in a state of perpe- of a sense of perpetual judgment. Is it it shorten it can shorten our lifespans. It has real physical consequences. Mm. And see, I I've always carried weight on my body. Yeah. You know, I you know, I'm I'm the generation that used to have to go to Sears and buy the pants called husky. <laughs> <laughs> Isn't that a charming name? Husky. I'm Husky. 
<laughs> There's a place for us in the gay community. Okay. It's called Bears. <laughs> Move on. <laughs> Move on. Um, no Animal Kingdom today. Uh, <laughs> but so I have I have fought that my entire life. Yeah. Now that's just genetic because I you know I can look back on the family tree now and say. You know, that just sort of comes with the territory. I have allowed that at times in my life to express just how much I hated myself. Mm. So I would let myself weigh too much on purpose. Mm. I, I would say if you, if you really did a study, you would, well, if you did a study, you would see instantly how susceptible same-sex attracted men are to forms of addiction, yes. alcohol, Cigarettes, drugs, the list goes on and on, which is basically just, you know, standing there and dangling a carrot in front of death and say, come get me, because every day I want to be dead. Exactly. Because this is not, this is, this is really painful living this way, because I live in a culture that thinks that I'm garbage and, mm. dis- and, and should be disposed of. But here I here I am a performing artist, singer, actor. You know, my voice teachers would threaten me, you know, being kicked out of their studios if I smoked, if I drank too much, if I used drugs. So I don't do any of that. I mean, I drink a little, but not to excess because it was scared out of me because this is my profession. Yeah. Why would I smoke cigarettes that's that you know, it's going to affect my voice? Why am I going to drink certain alcoholic beverages that are basically going to mess up my system and not help my voice, et cetera, et cetera? So I was protected from those forms of addiction, which could easily have developed in my life. I remember that in college, you knew me in college. I was a hot mess. Both of you knew me in college. Um, One of the hottest messes we knew. Yes, absolutely. (laughs) (laughs) I don't even know what to do with that. (laughs) Um, Hottest is, is, is you put that against mess. (laughs) Right, right, right. Don't, don't, don't put a, you know, okay, you got the point. Um, I remember having that exact same rationale, like, I can't do any drugs. I totally would. I would be right now if I didn't have to perform, if I didn't have to maintain this voice. And so that's why my arms are a lattice work of scars, because Mm -hmm. that was my drug, because it didn't hurt my voice and it didn't hurt my performance. And it was the pressure of being in the closet in a small Christian college. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So for me, my form of addiction, because everyone's got to have, you've got to deal with this some way. And for me... This being being in the closet. This, this being every day trying not to live in your reality. Right. Every day trying not, not to be present and somehow show up different than you are as... The writer Alan Downs would say of, of Velvet Rage, one of yes. the greatest books written the end of the 20th century on this topic, you have to compensate for the shame. You have to compensate for the fact that you have felt invalidated your entire existence. Mm-hmm. Exactly. So look at some of the most successful people in your community, and they're probably gay. Yep. Because you you basically wake up every day determined to prove that you're not shit. Mm. That's, I mean, that's... Yeah, to yourself and to everyone around. So 
you know, you all know me well enough. You know something of my resume. I've done a lot of stuff. Yes. Mm-hmm. I've done some good work. And you were maybe I've, the most, the one of the hardest working mm-hmm. people I've ever met in my yeah. life. You so, just never stopped. Well, and you know why? Because I, it couldn't get quiet. Yeah. Because when it got quiet, it was really dark. So the times that I dreaded the most, academic breaks. Mm. Fall break, spring break, summer break, Christmas break. Because, you know, I could go, I mean, I could basically overwork myself into a kind of drugged state. Because basically that, that was how, that was my drug. My drug was overworking, overcommitting, yeah. trying to do good work, wanting, you know, yeah, I mean, that's what you do when you can't use drugs and alcohol and, and cigarettes. To, and, or when you're miserable. Or just when you're miserable. When you're to, fighting off misery, sorry. To, well, to give an illustration of this, I remember, I have vivid memories of you having a, a uh, was it um, a pan- your pancreas? What was it? Oh, gallbladder. Your gallbladder. Your gallbladder literally about to explode, and you were conducting a choir and teaching classes in misery. You were in, and you would be conducting and would be doubling over in pain because you were in so much physical misery. And then I... I could not believe it because you you finished teaching one class. It was a it was a performance class, and then you got in your car, you drove to the hospital right after class, had the surgery, and then the next like it, it was that weekend. So that was on Friday, and then on Monday you were back. I could not believe it. <laughs> no, I remember that. I re- I remember the class. I remember. Yeah, you heard me on the phone with my doctor. Just basically said, "Go straight to the hospital." Because I was having a gallbladder attack. It was a good Friday, and i that's how I spent my Easter Sunday was recovering from gall, gallbladder surgery. But you just, you, you found ways to distract yourself. What I want to add at this moment is, I mean, I, 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 want, I want everyone to hear that I am one of the most blessed same-sex attracted men in the world. Because of the woman I married, mm. yeah, who did not belittle me, mm. she did not diminish me, she did not leave me, mm. she did not abandon me. We have two of the most incredible daughters in the world. She is she is my best friend in the world. Yes, things are a little awkward at the moment. I think that goes without saying. <laughs> But I long for the <laughs> Sorry, day. I, I, I <laughs> no, know it's a serious no, thing, no, and no, I, but I laugh at serious stuff. I know it, you do. Yeah. But sometimes <laughs> it's the only thing you can do because because she is perhaps the most extraordinary person I know on the planet. We have been a haven for each other. Yeah. We were we were a a place of refuge. Yeah. God did amazingly beautiful things in that context. Two human beings on this planet that will change the world for for the better. Sure. Who would not be here had my wife and I not had sex to have children. Oh. Oh, that's how that, that works? What? What? Is that? Wow. <laughs> <laughs> Sorry. Go on. You all have needed me here I need so a crude drawing. 
need a drawing? I need a crude drawing. <laughs> I mean, John and I just How have been they? keep trying and nothing's happened yet. I'm oh. sorry. You have to do it with a woman? Well, that's why you should read the book of Leviticus. Um, <laughs> <laughs> I can give you passages later. Thank you. Um, so all I can say is God is good. I think that's a very beautiful sentiment about, even, about your marriage. Yeah. Even within a context that could not provide either one of us fullness of healing, fullness of intimacy, fullness of eroticism. I mean, these are things that could not be fully realized sure. for sundry reasons. God does good things. I will say that I've, I've watched a lot of men go through this process, and you have maybe been the most graceful I mean, normally when I, when I watch men who are married go through this process, it is a disaster. It is just a total apocalypse. I feel like the people that we've seen go through this lose control entirely. Yeah, lo- lose they, control. They sort of implode, and then they lose control of their narrative. They're, you know, and it, they are found out instead of being able to say. But you know, well, I think what I would want to say is, you know, when I sat down and told my daughters, sure, which was one of the most frightening things I thought I would ever do in I my can't life. imagine and and my wife was there and I just told them the truth about the fact that there are many things that my wife and I hold in common and it has been it has been a peaceful existence mm-hmm. yeah and at the same time there was a level of incompleteness that neither one of us neither one of us could fix sure it's not possible and you know, after after my daughters heard the story, what was so amazing, and, and, and they heard about our mutual sacrifice. Mm-hmm. Neither one of us behaved outside the covenant we made all yeah. those years. And they both looked at us and just said, we thank you for your sacrifice for us. Mm-hmm. Because they get it. I mean, they're old enough that they would, I mean, they probably could have nightmares about what it would have been like had there been a scandal. In yeah. any sure. of these contexts, sure. and what that would have done to them, and you know, so I guess you know, and there might be some some person who might want to say, "Well, see, there's evidence that you did the right thing. Look at those beautiful people you've put on this planet. Obviously, that was God's intention." And I want to say, I don't know about that answer, sure, because I don't. I'm thoroughly convinced that the world's a better place because they're here, but. I would also want to challenge that response and say, I think what would be really, really neat is that both me and my wife could know a deeper authenticity as individuals in this life. I I, I think there's something also very beautiful about that. Yeah, absolutely. And, and, and I pray for, I pray that for her. I pray that for me. I pray that for my, for my daughters, that, you know, what are they learning through this incredibly <laughs> massive transition yeah. that I initiated? Yeah. And the level of graciousness that I have been shown by these people is extraordinary. But what, but what I said in that conversation was, we don't have to make this into some bad reality TV show. Yeah. We don't have to make this into some ridiculous 
ridiculous lifetime television for women episode <laughs> right. about this, 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 the tragic family falling apart. I said, every one of us here is a Christian. We are indwelt by the Holy Spirit. If we can't trust our God to see us through this, we're in trouble. And I have prayed on a daily basis that God will show us how to move to maneuver through this transition at our rate of speed, that we would be gracious and kind and generous to each other through it. And I can just testify that that's what's happening. And so why is it that, well, as, as I said to them, we don't have to do this the way the world expects us to do this. Right. Whatever that expectation is. But I mean, let's be honest, given the climate we live in, we want drama. We want something salacious. You want scandal. We want scandal. Yeah. We want there to be tragedy. You know, and the fact is I still love all of them. I still care for them. I believe they do for me. I think we all want the best for each other. I think we hurt. I think we question. And as, as difficult as, it, as this is to say, because I don't want to diminish my years past and years forward with them, because mm. I don't see this as over. Sure. We will, we will forever be linked together, because primarily because we're all You're members family. of the body of Christ, yeah. and we're all family. But the big thing for me is I'm happier. I'm happier because I no longer have to be apologetic. Mm for who I am. You know, am, do I like living alone? Not so much. It's so it's doable. It's okay. Do I miss them? Of course I miss them, but it is 2018 and we basically text constantly and know what's going on in each other's lives. They come to my apartment, I go to the house, we have meals together. I mean, it's not like, you know, I show up and it's like some really really difficult, awkward. Yeah. We just are being real with each other about reality, about where everybody is, and we're trying to work through that as best we can. Is it easy? No. Is it horrible? No. Do we all pray that it gets better? Yeah. But for people who take it for granted, and a lot of people do, to wake up in the morning and not have to say, I'm sorry I'm here. Hmm. To wake up yeah. in the morning and not have to say, I am so sorry I'm still alive. When I, when I hear you say that, it reminds me of all these times that I feel like growing up, the church was constantly promising freedom, freedom in Christ. That, oh my gosh, my, my yoke is easy, but my burden is light. I didn't find that to be true within the church. I felt like I had to go outside of it. I feel like I'm happier apart from that culture than I ever have been spiritually. And I think maybe, I mean, it, it might be possible that we're both after the same things, that, that the church is after the exact same thing that I'm experiencing now. It's just that they package it in such a way that only works for them, doesn't work for the rest of the world. I see the freedom that you're experiencing now, and that to me feels like what I was promised as a child mm -hmm. from the church. And we are we are brainwashed to believe that what enslaves us is supposed to be a form of freedom, and right. it's a kind of a it's kind of a sort of gaslighting of 
well, you say you're miserable. You say you want to die, but trust me, this is actually freedom. And the, and the at some psychological, point it'll work out. you know, so at some point there's going to be that breakthrough. At some point there's going to be that break in the clouds. And that's really kind of a form of mass gaslighting. And the psychological damage of that is enormous. Of being told for years, you want to die. This is miserable. Well, that is actually freedom because this is your cross. The, the consequences of that are just nightmare. To, to be a good Christian, you must come, you must live in complete misery, always knowing what a worthless piece of shit you are, and that at any moment, God, in his infinite wisdom, could decide to make your life even more shittier, and you should just job about it. No, that's not living. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> that's not living life. There's no freedom in that. There's no joy. There's no peace. There's no comfort. You know, I eventually realized that me not accepting my sexuality, my orientation was the most self-indulgent thing I could have ever possibly done because it kept me from a life of wholeness and that kept me from actually serving others in a meaningful, tangible way. I, I finally had to realize, is this the hill I want to die on? And the answer was, no, I want to die on the hill of justice. I want to die on the hill of compassion. Yeah. And that is what I want to do. I want to live a full and abundant life and serve humanity out of that. And as long as I fail to accept my orientation, I won't be able to do that. And, you know, while we're talking about the closet, uh, let me close this episode with a story. Timothy, you were the catalyst for me coming out. We talked about this. <laughs> Oops. <laughs> you this was when I was I, I think Would I was you turn off his mic now, please. <laughs> I time for a commercial break. Right. <laughs> yeah. I was twenty and I mean, this was long before it, I didn't really come to terms with it until I was about twenty five, but this or twenty six, but this was my exit out of ex gaydom. Sure. This was my exit out of trying to fix this. And I remember you telling me something that just so terrified me. And, you know, we went out to coffee one day to talk about this because, you know, I was one of the few people who you told about the and vice versa. And I remember at one point you looked at me and you said, I've stopped searching for the answers because at this point in my life, they wouldn't matter anymore. Mm. And that terrified me so much. I was like, I'm just going to fucking pull the plug. I'm just going to I'm just going to leave the I'm going to come out. I'm going to stop trying to change this. I'm going to try to live in congruence because what you were living and what I was living and you you kind of helped me see what I was living. It terrified me so much. So, Timothy, you have the dubious honor of scaring me out of the closet. <laughs> <laughs> wow. I hope you don't mind me telling that story. Not at all. Um, but I, I actually... You also spent many years covering for me, too. Yeah, I did. Oh, my God. I lied for you so many times. People would come up to me and be like, is, is Timothy gay? And I'm like, no, he's just really metro. You know, he's just... He's <laughs> did you really lie or did you just give them the truth they wanted? I gave them the truth they wanted. Because, like, he's just a really fabulous metro man. I mean... He has a wife. He has kids. Of course he's straight. I lied for you so many times. And I will keep lying for you, Timothy, until this episode drops. <laughs> <laughs> well, I think that's a great note to, to end this episode sure. on. 
So that's our show for this week. We will probably keep talking to Timothy. And so stay tuned for more of this story. We're going to talk more about what life is like coming out and in the closet. And I've got a lot of questions about the closet. Yeah. What's it like in there? Is it a walk-in? Crowded. (laughs) (laughs) My closet was a walk-in closet because I... My closet because you made room because I made room and it it also had glass doors. Everyone could fucking tell except right. me. Everyone knew. <laughs> I burned the fucking building down. I was that's so flaming. It. Glass door closet. <laughs> so coming to Netflix. Uh, so that's our show for this week. The music <laughs> is by Matt Langston. The Jelly Rocks. The artwork is by Justin Caleb Bryant. If you enjoy this show, if you find yourself looking forward to it every week, please do me a small favor, go to iTunes or wherever you listen and write a kind five-star review that will really help me out. Also, go to sbradfordlong.com where you can read my dozens of articles on faith and doubt, sexuality, mental health, and whatever strikes my fancy. If you want more shows and blogs like this one, go to theologycorner.net where there are all kinds of super smart people talking about really interesting things. All right, well, Matt, you have a new album out. I do. I play in a band called 117. A lot of you already know about it. Um, and we have an album that just came out. We actually just have a uh, music video for a song off that album, uh, a song called Microchip. And it is up on our Facebook and on our YouTube and everywhere. It's off our record, Rad Science, that came out this past November. And it's loads of fun. You should check it out. Awesome. Well, I will play Microchip as the outro instead of my regular outro. There we go. Yeah. We will see you next week.
that one.